Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining me on this Friday, February 26th, 2021, a Friday during the season of Lent for Christians throughout the world. It was on this day in 1993 that a group of terrorists planted and exploded a bomb in the World Trade Center in New York City, a failed attempt to bring down the Twin Towers, but nonetheless resulted in a great many deaths. They would, of course, as we all know, succeed just a few years later on September 11th, 2001, when the hijacked planes flew into the World Trade Towers and ultimately brought them down, a day that we will remember for many years to come. It was also on this day in 1815 that Napoleon and his followers escaped from the island of Elba to bring war briefly, but once again, to uh, France and Europe in a failed bid to retake power after his defeat as Emperor of France. But it was also on this day in 1616 that the Inquisition delivered an injunction to Galileo uh, instructing him to uh, renounce his assertion with regard to the heliocentric universe. And so I thought in, in keeping in mind that event and in light of so many things that have been happening over the last year with regard to the uh, COVID pandemic and the health crisis throughout the year, I thought it would be a, a good time to talk about the importance of science and its relationship with faith and matters of faith. Because Galileo becomes a symbol, has become a symbol, of how faith and science are constantly at odds with each other. And of course, in the last year, you've heard many, many people, especially politicians and other public figures, talking about, well, we want to follow the science, we want to follow the science. And it's almost become cliche. It's almost like a one-upmanship. You know, I follow the science. And when you think about it, they're invoking the science pretty much as much as people used to invoke the will of God, always wanting to do what God's will is and asserting that this is the will of God. Uh, frankly, neither side knows what God's will is and knows what the science is in many cases, as we've seen over the last year. Science will say one thing one day and something completely different the next. Some would say science has been falling all over itself over the last year. But there is something to be said for a systematic study of creation so that we can address crises like this pandemic of COVID-19. However, when people are often invoking science and saying, I believe in the science, we have to follow the science, oftentimes they will say that in a condescending manner with regard to people of faith. In other words, like making an unspoken comparison. Unlike people of faith, I'm a person of science. And sometimes they'll even criticize someone as not believing in science, and usually, more often than not, that person they're criticizing is a person of a deep faith, usually a Christian faith. Uh, for example, on more than one occasion, I heard some leaders of our nation refer to the former vice president, Mike Pence. He's a man who doesn't believe in science. Well, I'm not exactly sure that that's true, but it's a pretty safe bet that they are saying that in deference to his strong Christian faith. And when it comes to faith versus science, nowadays people want to puff themselves up and say, well, I'm a person of science. We are doing what the science is telling us to do. And even if 
it's in a dispute or a debate with someone, they'll often throw that out. Well, this is what the science says, and this is what the science tells us, whether or not the science actually does so. Again, the same way people used to say, well, God's will is this, or I believe God's will is this. And there is that conflict that occurs between notions of faith and notions of science. Uh, but many people would be surprised at the history behind that conflict and actually where modern science comes from, how modern science developed. But first of all, there is that question, does science really replace religion? You know, when we understand how the world works, we understand the laws of nature and the laws of creation, uh, we can experiment with them, we can write about them, and we can teach them after we have learned them through a process of experimentation and theorizing and so on. And so many will say, well, because I believe in science, I therefore don't need religion. I don't need to believe in God because I understand the science. And when you really think of the logic of that, ask yourself, does that really make sense? What if I were to say, I learned in school, in high school science class, I learned how the light bulb works. I learned how it's put together. I learned what elements are brought in, what materials are needed, how it's put together, and how the light bulb works. And because I know how the light bulb works, I therefore don't need to believe in Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison is just a myth created by a company with the same name, by the way, in case you hadn't noticed, the Edison Company. And they just created this figure named Thomas Edison in order to promote this product. But because I know how the light bulb works, I don't need to believe in Thomas Edison. Now, of course, that doesn't make any sense because we know Thomas Edison is the one who invented the light bulb and others improved upon it over time. So it doesn't make any sense that just because I know how the light bulb works, I therefore don't have to believe in the man who invented it, or to say that the man who invented it is nothing more than a myth because I know how the light bulb works. Well, it's the same thing with regard to science and faith. Science uncovers God's creation. Science unlocks the secrets of nature and creation. But in no way does it negate where creation comes from, and that is the creator. Now, a popular thing that is often said is that Galileo, who's the father of science, was persecuted by the church because of his scientific uh, knowledge of the universe. He believed that the universe, or at least the solar system, was centered on the sun with the planets orbiting the sun, called the heliocentric universe. And many people will assert the conflict between Galileo and the church, saying that he was imprisoned and that he was tortured and that he was forced to renounce his scientific findings by the big bad church. Now, I'm not going to deny that there was enough ego to go around on both sides in that history. And there were a couple of important saints, such as Robert Bellarmine, who were involved in the Galileo affair. But there are certain things to remember in the history of Galileo and the Galileo affair with regard to the church and the understanding of the heliocentric universe. First of all, Galileo was not imprisoned. He was not put in a dank, damp, dark, dirty, filthy prison. Galileo was put under house arrest. So he lived in the comfort of his home. Galileo was not tortured. When one is tortured, one's health is terribly compromised. But Galileo died at the age of 78, which was old even for that period. 
and he remained deeply religious and devout. He was not tortured by the church. He was not tortured by the Inquisition. And finally, he was not condemned for the heliocentric view of the universe that he held. Because the thing to remember is that theory was already accepted by the scientific community at that time. The heliocentric universe was proposed and promoted by Copernicus, who countered the traditional Ptolemaic view that the Earth was at the center of the solar system and that the sun, the moon, the stars orbited the Earth. Galileo built upon the work of Copernicus. But at the time of Galileo, the heliocentric universe was only a hypothesis that was not yet definitively proven or demonstrated to be the truth. It was a working hypothesis. They had not determined with any kind of lack of doubt that this was the case. It was a working hypothesis, a working theory. And it had its camps. You had the geocentric or the, the Ptolemaic vision or view of the universe, and you had the Copernican, the heliocentric view of the universe, and both of them were debating the issue. And they were still studying the stars, studying the planets, to determine which was the truth. But it was not as yet a determined fact as it is today. Now we know that our solar system orbits the sun, not the earth. But at the time of Galileo, it was still just in the stage of being a theory. In this whole process that led to the conflict, Galileo was commissioned to write a book, and he was commissioned by the church, by the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was his publisher. And what that means, if anyone who's ever had a book published knows, that when you are under contract with a publisher, you've agreed with a publisher to write a book for them, while it is your writing, and in the case of Galileo, his studies and his findings, the work is owned by the publisher. To simply go off after the fact and have it published on your own or by someone else would constitute a breach of contract. And given the conflict with Galileo that the church had with his findings incorporated into the book, you could see where Galileo might end up under house arrest if he went off and had it published on his own when the church wouldn't, given the circumstances. But being the publisher, the church owned the book. Even though it was Galileo's work, the church owned the book as his publisher. But his book was not on the universe. It was a book to describe the movement of the tides. Now, as we all hopefully know, in order to understand the movement of the tides, you have to understand gravity and the orbit of the moon around the Earth. Because we know the gravitational pull of the moon and where it is in its orbit around the Earth affects the tides throughout the world. So, Galileo's vision and concepts of the universe were his data for his book about the tides. And this was a book that was commissioned by the church. The problem was in Galileo's presentation of the tides, of his theory, he presented the heliocentrism of the universe as a certainty, not as a theory. Remember, it was only a theory at that particular time, had not been definitively demonstrated to be certain. 
And Galileo had presented the heliocentric universe as a certainty. The church, wanting to be accurate for that particular time, wanted Galileo to treat heliocentrism as a hypothesis, and they wanted him to change that assertion in the book. So they weren't telling him to renounce the heliocentric universe, but they wanted him to classify it in the book as a theory, whereas he was in the camp that wanted to assert it as a certainty, but it had not as yet been demonstrated as such. And there's where we have the, the conflict. Galileo was put under house arrest, but he was not tortured, and he was forced to recant the heliocentric universe as a certainty. The church had no problem with it as a theory. And when it was eventually demonstrated, I believe within Galileo's lifetime, it was demonstrated to be the case. It was demonstrated to be a certainty. But at the time Galileo wrote his book, it had not, was not the case. And by the way, in 1953, his conclusions were demonstrated to be wrong by none other than Albert Einstein, who in a republication of Galileo's work, Albert Einstein in the introduction to that publication in 1953, talked about how Galileo's theories on the tides were completely incorrect. So he ended up being correct in terms of the theory of heliocentrism, but his conclusions regarding the tide uh, was not. So that's a bit of a historical irony there. So many people hold Galileo up as this victim of the church who was hounded and persecuted for his theories, but that's not entirely the case. But let's assume for a moment, let's assume for a moment that the way we hear this history is true and that the big bad church came to poor little defenseless Galileo and bullied him into renouncing his teachings. That isn't the case, but what if that was? As we hear it pushed so often today, by people who love to assert the conflict between church and science. That would basically tell us that the father of modern science, when the going got tough, renounced his theories. How do you find that is different to the fathers of faith, specifically the Christian faith, the 12 apostles and the early Christians? Jesus founded the church on the 12 apostles, and all of them, all of them died for that faith. And this was something they saw with their own eyes. The risen Jesus, who appeared to them, who ate before them, who spoke with them. They saw him. And one can say scientifically, there's no better empirical data than eyewitness account. But when the going got tough, these apostles died for that faith. Galileo recanted. So when people assert the fact that Big Bad Church persecuted and tortured and imprisoned Galileo and forced him to recant... They really are not doing Galileo any real favors because they're basically presenting the father of modern science as a coward who would renounce all of his brilliant demonstrations, theories, and studies, and findings in order to save his own life. Whereas the fathers of faith would not renounce this even to save their own lives. Of course, Galileo was a brilliant man, a man of deep faith, it was just the conflict between the certainty or the theory of the heliocentric universe at that particular time. But when you look at theology and science, what does it basically deal with? Both of them deal with a question of the truth. The only interesting thing about the two is one is the inverted version of the other. What do we have with science? We have observations of the world around us. 
observations in which we collect data and evidence. From that data and evidence, a hypothesis is developed, and then that hypothesis is tested, and with the testing comes the adjusting and verifying of that hypothesis until a conclusion can be drawn, an undeniable law of nature or an undeniable truth based on the scientific evidence. Theology is basically the reverse. Theology begins with undeniable truths that we receive through revelation, being uh, through Jesus Christ and the teachings of the church, be it through scripture. And then we take those revelations and we apply it to human experience. For example, what has been revealed to us? It has been revealed that God is a God of love. But what is the human experience? Well, the human experience is that people suffer, especially children. There are bad people who make other people suffer. So theological propositions are put forward. You cannot say there isn't a God because it's been shown to us that there is. You cannot say that God is not a God of love because it has been revealed to us that he is. So how do you reconcile what has been revealed? There is a God, he's a God who loves us, with the reality of human suffering. And in that, theological propositions are put forth and tested against revelation. So what are some of the theological propositions? There is no God because there's human suffering and even the innocent children suffer. But you can't say that because tested against revelation, we know there is a God. Well, God is obviously not a God of love. Okay, tested against revelation, we know God is a God of love. So again, we test human experience against what's been revealed, and the result is the development of formally defined theological teachings. And we see that even in the writings of Scripture, St. Paul had to grapple with that in many of his writings. We're saved, and yet we're suffering. And there are other such examples as well. So science begins with the observable facts, leading to a hypothesis, with testing, adjusting, and verifying, and coming to a conclusion based on the testing of available evidence of an undeniable law or truth. And even that conclusion can develop over time as our knowledge of the world continues to expand. Theology is the opposite. We begin with the truth and then test human experience against that truth to come to conclusions in which we reconcile or coincide revelation with human experience to a formally defined teaching. And so, in many ways, science doesn't contradict faith, nor does faith really contradict science. But it's important to notice that without faith, without the Christian faith, and in particular the Catholic Church, there would be no modern science. And how can we say that? Well, in many of the ancient cultures, the non-Judeo-Christian religions saw the universe as something that was eternal. It was not created. The universe doesn't have beginning or purpose. Many cultures just saw it as a cycle. The same things happen over and over again, which is why from the earliest ancient cultures we see a scarcity of history. But the belief was that the universe was irrational, cyclical, but inconsistent, and therefore the path to wisdom was meditating on that universe, meditating on that world. But there's nothing to reason about. Whereas with Western Judeo-Christianity, it believes the world is created. And if the world is created, then the world has a beginning. And as something that is created, the world has order and can yield the structure of that order to reason and observation. 
Judeo-Christianity believes that humanity is made in God's image and likeness, and therefore we are capable of discovering and unlocking these secrets. Therefore, the path to wisdom is reason, using our mind, observing what's around us. And that all comes from the Christian faith in God as a rational, personal being. And that led to the desire to unlock the rational order of things set out by God, the Creator. And we unlock that order by studying God's creation. And that, of course, was the precursor to science. Even some of the greatest of the earliest scientists were men of very deep faith. For example, one of the earliest scientists, one of the earliest people to be considered a scientist, was St. Albert the Great, who died in 1280. He was a philosopher and a theologian, but he was also a biologist, an embryologist, a mineralogist. He wrote works combining ancient sources with his own empirical observations. In other words, Albert the Great was the first one to take the writings of Aristotle, who was a philosopher, not a scientist. He philosophized his concept of the world. But Albert was among the first to test that and draw his own conclusions based on his observations. How much of Aristotle was correct, how much of it was not. And it was even Albert who said, it is the task of natural science not simply to accept what we are told, but to inquire into the causes of natural things. It's in the study of natural science to question, not to simply accept things blindly, because some other scientist or some other theologian or some other philosopher told us to accept this. But rather, a scientist is always testing, always verifying, and nothing is ever really settled. Because once something is settled, then the, the conclusion grows stale. It has to constantly be tested. Another great early scientist was Johannes Kepler, who said that the laws of nature are within the grasp of the human mind, and God wanted us to recognize them by creating us after his own image so that we could share in his own thoughts. And he says, I'm merely thinking God's thoughts after God thought them and unlocking the natural world through science. He said, the chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order and harmony imposed upon it by God, and which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. And this is a scientist who's recognizing that science merely unlocks God's creation. We're unlocking the mind of God in looking into God's creation. And where were these studies done initially? Well, they were done in an institution of learning called the university which was established by the Catholic Church. And these institutions could not be established without a charter from the Pope. So these were religious institutions, and within these institutions of learning, we saw the first internationally recognized system of degrees and learning. And they were recognized and respected beyond borders, regardless of what country the university was in, it would be recognized in universities of other countries. And you saw such universities come out of Christian Europe as uh, among the earliest ones would be Bologna in 1088, Oxford in 1190, Cologne 1388. The university in Paris, which I believe closed in the mid-20th century, was established in 1160. Cambridge, which is, is still going, was established in 1281. Uh, you've got Salamanca, uh, you've got Krakow, you've got Prague, you have Vienna, the university in Heidelberg, all throughout Europe, Naples, Pisa, Siena, Rome. And in these universities, students studied logic, 
philosophy, languages and rhetoric, grammar. They studied law. But they also studied theology, the study of God. They studied music, arithmetic, but they also studied astronomy, physics, and the natural sciences. And a lot of the earliest scientific breakthroughs occurred in these Catholic institutions. Now ask yourself, if science threatened faith, and particularly the Catholic Christian faith, would the church have allowed science to flourish in these Catholic institutions of learning called the universities? And the answer to that, of course, is no, because science in many ways complements the faith in God as creator and, in fact, explores that. And we have very, very many examples of these scientists, mathematicians, and other pioneers of understanding the natural world, from mathematics to the biological and other natural sciences. To name just a few, Bonaventura Cavalieri was a mathematician who developed what's still called today Cavalieri's quadrature formula. He's a mathematician. Another mathematician was Bernardo Bolzano, who developed what's now known as the Bolzano-Weiser-Strauss theory. He was a mathematician, a logician, a philosopher, and a theologian, but also a priest who worked, among other places, he worked in the University of Prague. Father Marine Mersenne, who died in 1648, was a French theologian and a member of the Minim Friars, who worked in the universities of Nevers and in Paris, and he was a philosopher, but also a mathematician and a music theorist. He's known for the Mersenne Prime, and he is the father of acoustics. As a music theorist, he became the father of acoustics. Another is Francisco Grimaldi. Francisco Grimaldi is an important scientist who had a great impact on the works of Sir Isaac Newton. He was a mathematician and a physicist, and he was the first to make accurate observations on light diffraction. In fact, he coined the term light diffraction. He's the one who discovered diffraction bands. And later physicists, like Isaac Newton, used his work as evidence that light was a wave. And so important is his work that there's actually a moon crater called the Grimaldi Crater that's named after him. Christoph Scheiner was a Jesuit priest who was an astronomer and a physicist who discovered sunspots. And he actually disputed with Galileo at that time. Galileo said that he discovered sunspots, but actually Christoph Scheiner was one who said, no, I discovered sunspots. So he, he, he and Galileo went back and forth uh, with each other on that subject. Giovanni Riccioli was an Italian astronomer, the first to map the surface of the moon as well as argued theories concerning the motion of the Earth. Giuseppe Piazzi, who died in 1826, was a mathematician and an astronomer, and was the first to discover a dwarf planet called Ceres. And he also supervised uh, the Palermo Catalog of Stars. Bringing science down to Earth, someone who's on his way to sainthood is Blessed Nicholas Steno, he was given the task of discovering why shark teeth were found in mountains, fossilized shark teeth. And in uncovering the reasons why shark fossils were found in mountains, he became the father of geology and worked in the University of Padua. And his work, especially in the, the concept of the 
geographic development lasting thousands, even millions of years, as opposed to a six-day creation story in the Bible, Blessed Nicholas Steno paved the way for the concept of evolution. Long before Charles Darwin presented it, it was a Catholic bishop, someone who's on his way to sainthood. He was beatified by Pope St. John Paul II in 1988. A Catholic bishop paved the way for the concept of evolution. Another scientist, Benedetto Castelli, who died in 1643, was a longtime supporter of Galileo. He assisted Galileo in his study of sunspots. He taught Galileo's son. Galileo got him a position at the University of Bologna, and he was a Benedictine monk, Benedetto Castelli. He became the abbot of Monte Cassino, the monastery founded by St. Benedict, which was destroyed uh, during World War II, subsequently rebuilt. Father Castelli's students, Giovanni Alfonso Borelli, and Evangelista Torricelli, who was the inventor of the barometer. But in addition to all that, Father Castelli, a Benedictine monk, is the father of hydraulics, who wrote works on the measuration of running water. Hydraulics is the science of running water, and a Catholic monk is the father of the study of hydraulics. Just to name a couple of more, many of you have heard of Gregor Mendel. You probably learned about him in grammar school as the father of modern genetics, but he was an Augustinian friar and an abbot who didn't even know he was the father of genetics. His study of peas as the, one of the gardeners of his monastery paved the way for the study of genetics. In fact, two geneticists, Karl Korins and Hugo de Vries, were setting themselves out to discover genetic theory, hoping for themselves to be the fathers of genetics, but they came across the, the notes of Father Mendel, and Father Mendel was posthumously recognized as the father of genetics. And as we see, genetics today is an intense study and can be a controversial one with what we do with that genetic knowledge. Angelo Secchi was a, a Jesuit a Jesuit priest who was a professor of physics at the college in Laredo, but he also taught at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Took his doctoral examination in theology at Georgetown. He became the director of the observatory at the Roman College at the Pontifical Gregorian University, and he held that post for 28 years. But he is also known as the father of astrophysics and discovered the principle of stellar classification. And as the father of astrophysics, he invented such things as the heliospectrograph, the star spectrograph, the telespectrograph. And this is a Catholic priest, a Jesuit priest, who died in 1878. But another that perhaps many of you may or may not have heard of is the man who proposed the theory of the expansion of the universe, the expanding universe theory. Many people, especially atheists who like to espouse the fact that you know God did not create the earth. They say, what about the Big Bang theory, which is the expanding universe theory? What many of them don't realize is that this theory, the Big Bang theory, was actually proposed by a Catholic priest, a priest named Georges Lemaitre, a Belgian priest who was an astronomer, a professor of physics at the Catholic University in Leuven, Belgium. And actually, if any of us have ever heard of Hubble's Law, 
Father Lamette was actually the first to propose what came to be known as Hubble's Law. In 1927, he proposed that, but Hubble's article came out two years later. But the Big Bang Theory was actually proposed by a Catholic priest, and not many people know that. And it was Father Lamette who actually convinced Albert Einstein. Einstein was somewhat skeptical of that theory, but Father Lamette actually convinced Einstein of his theory. And he's very much a contemporary. He's a modern scientist in the modern world and a priest in the modern church. He died in 1966, not that long ago. A few years before I was born, but not that long ago in the grand scheme of history and the development of science. And so in many ways, it is a mistake when we say that faith is at odds with science. And that somehow science negates faith. And that somehow people of faith are not and cannot be people of science. Because in many ways, if it weren't for the Catholic faith, the Christian faith, the Judeo-Christian faith in a universe that was created and in a universe that has laws put into it by the Creator, if it weren't for faith that we were made in God's image and likeness as human beings, if it weren't for the fact that as people made in God's image and likeness, we have the use of reason in which we can draw conclusions from our observations of the world and a yearning to come to know more deeply the God who created us, there would be no science. Even the philosophers of the ancient world did not test their theories. Aristotle did not test his theories. Christian theology wants to test it, to know it better, to understand it, to learn it, and teach it. And science at one time was nothing more than a branch of theology. The theology of God as creator. And in studying God as creation, a disposition that came forth from the Judeo-Christian faith, we now have modern science. So in many ways, folks, there is no war between faith and science, at least not on the faith side, not on the church side. Maybe there is on the science side a war against faith, but when you really think about it, it's not really much of a war. It's not really much of a skirmish. It's more like a teenager rebelling against its parents. A teenager basically saying, I don't need you. And yet, the teenager wouldn't be there without his parents. And it's the same thing between science and faith, science and the church. Judeo-Christian faith gave humanity the disposition that led to science, and the Catholic Church developed the institutions called the universities in which the study of science, the study of God as creator, flourished. And so, when in these, hopefully, these last few weeks and months of this pandemic, as the vaccine is being made more available, people are, are getting sick and surviving, and herd immunity is developed, as we grow in our appreciation for science, let's not use science to be a means of one-upmanship toward people of faith. And certainly don't look at people of faith, at least of the Judeo-Christian faith, and especially the Catholic faith, as people who don't believe in science. It's because of our faith that science exists, and we are perhaps the most prone to accepting the science. And so for people to say that Christians or people of a Judeo-Christian faith don't believe in science is the height of naivete and prejudice and ignorance in not only what the faith is about, but also the history of that faith and the history of science. 
So I hope uh, this has been interesting for you because we've been hearing a lot about it. In many ways, condescended to it. As people of faith, we don't believe in science when we do. But hopefully this helps bring a perspective. And I've only just scratched the surface of the great history that science has with the Catholic Church and with the Christian faith. And who knows, when people get over their divisiveness and their mental divisiveness between faith and reason, faith and science, when they get over their prejudices as people of science, presuming that people of faith are close to science, then we might actually see a greater harmony between the two because, let's face it, science is nothing more than unlocking the secrets and the laws put forth in our world and in our universe by God, the Creator. So I thank you for your attention. I thank you for joining me on this day. look forward to being with you again sometime soon. With any luck, we'll talk again.